0: How would this week go for everyone?
1: This is a pretty good week.
0: It was it was an exhaust an exhausting week.
1: Oh, it was definitely exhausting. We all had our late night adventures. There was lots of after dark to go around. Yeah. Um, how about how about you, Zach, on the home front? How was San Francisco?
2: Well, you know what I was going to say was uh, well while, while y'all were busy like signing deals with Ford and stuff. I was in San Diego on vacation because it's Hanukkah. (sighs) There you go. Um,
1: (laughs) I I actually I got to go to um, in Philly. I was walking to go have dinner with uh, my old boss, and I walked through this park in Philadelphia, and it was the eighth night of Hanukkah, and they were having a ceremony in the park and you know lighting the menorah. There was a little kid who was waving around this. sword that was made out of, like, you know, kind of a balloon, yeah. and he's waving it right by the menorah, and I'm thinking, that's not going to go well <laughs> if that melts.
2: <laughs> yeah. But it, was, it, it, it didn't, was crazy, so yeah.
1: everything, there was no little kid crying about his balloon melting, and everybody sang songs, and they were very happy, so. So how was your Hanukkah?
2: My Hanukkah was really quite nice, um, and it was cool because it ended, and I came back to work for Thursday and Friday. I mean, it ended on, on Monday, but... Um, mm-hmm. I, I, we stayed in San Diego until Wednesday just because we got good deals on certain dates for the flights. But, uh, mm-hmm. no, we came back to work to the uh, quarterly Pivotal Hack Day.
1: Um, yeah, that looked really fun.
2: And it's it's always a cool... I'm sorry because, you know, like, this week at Pivotal is not very Pivotally. It's, it's sort of uh, tangential. But, yeah, no, the Hack Day is always this interesting thing that I think... Uh, is a great way, especially the winter quarter Hack Day. Is a great way to sort of unwind into the new year uh, with fun projects. So there's some really cool stuff that was done. One of the engineers in San Francisco wrote Nats DB, and he named it something else, but I don't remember. Nats DB yeah, is it what was, it was called. JuggleDB. Juggle DB, Juggle <laughs> DB, okay, and it, and it works where you 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 know you put like a row in the DB is is a message that the clients are just constantly sending around in a circle to each other. Hey. Eh? And so, and the and the best part of it was that it turned out to be completely fault tolerant because if you take the server down, the clients just sit on all their messages until the server comes back up to keep sending stuff. What? So, so yeah, it turns out you can you can use NATS as a as a fault tolerant NoSQL database. Uh, for sending, for sending messages with, with the, the database entry as the payload. All, Wait, so all, all
0: databases are message queues, and all message queues are databases. That's, that's essentially what he, he was able to prove. There's, a, any there's, doubt. A, there's an old uh,
2: Microsoft paper that walks <laughs> through all that logic. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was maybe the craziest thing. Uh, last quarter, we had somebody build Bosch Deployed by Drone, um, where there was, there was a drone. I, I, I can't quite... There's a box with, like, some keys that you had to put in, and I think the drone had one of the keys, and so the drone had to fly over to give you one of the keys. It was very... Um, you know, it sort of reminds me of, of at some point, the PM... On, on my team described working at VeriSign when they had to go get the master private key and there's two people <laughs> who are more than arm's length away have to put keys and a vault opens and there's an air-gapped computer, it's sort of like that.
1: Oh. I saw that somebody did the, like a, a Bosch boot one.
2: Yeah.
1: It's like to create manifests easily.
2: There's, there's, there's like two dozen projects, right, that I saw stream through in the, the mailing list. You know, I, I read the first five or six emails, and then I was like, "Oh man, this is this is getting bigger and bigger. I'll have to catch up on this on the way to work on Monday." You're like, "I'm out." Yeah.
0: Well, we yeah. did we did five meetups and two
2: workshops last week. So that's and, like more than one meetup or workshop per day.
1: Yep, math would dictate.
0: Yes. <laughs> wow. It, it was. We did Philadelphia, and then we had. Some New York action and then we had some DC action.
2: I um yeah, I I did a tech talk last week in Palo Alto and that was exhausting. Can't imagine doing seven in a week.
1: Oh we, we distributed it a little. Some was me and Casey and some was Schaefer and some was Josh Long and some was Kenny Bastani, so it wasn't like every, you know, it wasn't all of us talking every night.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. Sex. So Still, we did talk every night, but we didn't talk in front of a, a group. Yeah. It was, it was interesting though. We saw, we saw, we covered a lot of ground. There's, there's, there's definitely, uh, I don't know. If you go read the comments on the meetup, seems like people, people like the show.
1: Yeah, what I, what I liked about it is that we got, I thought, really good questions. Um, I mean, different questions in every city, but really good questions and ideas from people about the kinds of stuff that they want to talk about. Like it, it's interesting that a lot of people are still at that, like, oh, containers, maybe they're magic, but they, they showed up because, you know, we, we rubbed some Docker on the meetup title um, for a couple of the meetups. Like, they showed up and then they thought okay, now I actually, we actually had someone from um, a bank which is considering, you know, various projects for their scheduling, orchestration, et cetera, tell us that this was the, the clearest explanation they had gotten yet of, you know, moving the discussion a little up the stack and uh, talking more about more what you need beyond just containers and, and the scheduling thereof.
2: I think, you know, giving my tech talk in Palo Alto where we, we had a number of folks come in who, who were not by any means even necessarily familiar with Bosch and, mm-hmm. and what I sort of discovered is that I live in this perfect bubble inside Pivotal where everybody knows all this stuff but when you, when you bring it to the community there's this real hunger for an explanation that's not like Docker's fairly esoteric front page or Ansible's like website which is super, you know like it's, it's a great job if you already know, if you're already in the DevOps world, but as somebody who's like, I need to start evaluating my options, there's this hunger for people to like, give you some bullet points, here's how the basics work, and like here's the end to end of what you, you need containers, and you need an orchestrator, and you need a router, and you need some CI, and how do we put this together? That Like the telling of the whole story is is just sorely lacking.
0: I, I would say even inside of Pivotal from, from project to project that we don't all have the same ideas about all of it, right? It's, it's like everyone's touching the elephant in a different place.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, and I would say also to be fair, like we can improve the front page of, you know, org more than we have. So this is this is definitely, we don't have all the answers and we haven't solved everything, but I'm really glad to be having these conversations with people.
2: Right. And and one of the things too that I that I really put place some value in was was the feedback about like w- the way that we present the tools that we think are good. And how like you know, I got some really good feedback about like how we how we communicate why our process and why the process we advocate for is important. And and a lot of it comes from like stepping back to what are the benefits? Why does, why does this help us? Why should we do it this way? And I think that this is a problem that I sort of ran into when I was writing this was like I can sort of, I work here, I sort of intuitively understand it but how do you how do you then tell somebody who has you know their processes pretty close to waterfall and they have a six-month release cycle, how do you say to them here's the concrete tangible benefit you get from continuous deployment.
1: Well that's that's actually a really great topic because that's what a lot of our conversations this week were about. It was amazing seeing um you know Casey and you know Schaefer and others, you know, having that moment where they're talking and I mean I was talking sometimes too because you know you can't it's hard to get me to stop talking. But from time to time I will shut up and listen to these guys and uh, they're talking and you can kind of see the lights going on in all of these eyes of people at large you know businesses and large government uh, you know organizations where they've clearly been doing those six month release cycles that you're talking about or longer for a really long time
0: but before we talk about that I want to go back to the the meta part of what Zach was talking about where he, he thought he had an insight or you know, that you got some feedback like I want to hear you articulate what you would message different or kind of what your,
1: what
2: your insight was.
1: Oh, yeah, and what was the feedback? Uh,
2: what, what I saw and what I received, I received feedback from some participants and from some fellow pivots. What, what I saw was I, I initially wrote this talk as like, this is good, here's why we do it. And I ended up, you know, rearranging it to be these things are bad. So we do it differently to avoid these bad things, and and the concrete example was, I'm talking about anti-patterns in development, and and so you have a Jenkins VM somewhere, maybe it's in Amazon, the, the person who deployed it left the company six months ago. You can't find it. It also has access to the internal network, but also has access somehow to the Amazon info IP address you can't find the repo that it checks stuff out from because it's an IP address also it's like some crazy git repo that somebody set up that's not on GitHub and I'm looking out over the crowd and I see this guy in the back just like with his head in his hands like oh yes I know that I've been to that circle of hell (laughs) And, and I sort of this was one of the first talks I'd given and so I happened upon this thing sort of organically but uh, uh, one of my coworkers pointed out this is, this is called building empathy and I think that we're, we're I'm starting to see it now in the way we communicate more is this idea of like we need to stop banging the drum of this is good come do it this way and start saying like hey slow down look at the way things are going now and tell me that you don't see a need for something better and I think that that's, that was this, this sort of epiphany that I had that apparently other people had a long time before me. But to me, it was new. was like, oh, I need to start thinking about, like, and I'm, I'm young, and I started my career at Pivotal, so for me, like, I've only ever done it the right way. I, you, and so it was this sort of new, like, oh, like, there are people who aren't in the world of CD and aren't in the world of, you know, infrastructure as code. And and introducing these concepts needs to come from talking about why we do it this way in the first place. Why why are we here? Why have we come to the conclusion that this is the thing? That's a good idea. And we came to that conclusion because we wanted to stop banging our head against like random Jenkins VMs that we can't find.
1: <laughs> Did that actually happen to you? Because that's hilariously specific.
2: Yeah, that that was a real thing.
1: Oh my gosh. How? Like I, there's so many questions. Like, why did somebody set up the Git repo on... Did they just stand up their own GitLab or something? Like, what? Why? What? Uh,
2: this, was, this was something I touched briefly as an intern, and then we, like, tore it down and never talked about it again. We were just like, okay, we don't need this.
1: Just paper, <laughs> have... paper that over. People have
2: that, Just build a wall. Exactly. So, um, but no, I, and I think that it's, like, sort of that that memory of that was a good reminder that even at Pivotal, like, we have a history we're only doing things what I say the right way now because we we began by doing it the wrong way and we learned, oh shoot, that's like not so useful for us and we're lucky that at Pivotal we have the buy-in top-down to say, okay go deploy you know, concourse and actually do it the right way, but having right. to explain this to the world where, you know, you, you're an engineer at a company and, and all you know is the, the hell of snowflakes. All you know is the six-month release cycle that you're deploying with Capistrano directly to a VM that you manually provisioned. If all you know is that and you're trying to break in, you're totally right. Like, cloudfoundry.org does an does a okay job of explaining why it's better. Ansible does an okay job of explaining why they're better than Capistron. Docker does an okay job of explaining why they're better than manually provisioning VMs. But it needs to start with look at how terrible the way things are. Look at this. Look at how bad this is. Because it's crazy. And it's 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 just it's just so surprising to me coming from, you know, out of university straight to Pivotal that people haven't you know, like staged a revolt.
1: <laughs> it, it, you might be part of the revolt.
2: I, that's that's you know that's there's the point when I um, I sort of <laughs> was like, do I do I co work at Pivotal or not? And I was like, ah, oh, I want to be part of the revolt.
1: <laughs> so, I'm curious, when you were at university, did they talk at all about like CI, CD, um. I don't know, even, like, distributed version control?
2: Because I hear
1: sometimes from people that they don't tell the kids these days about that stuff, and I'm just kind of wondering, like, what did they
2: tell you? So I had a really... I You know, I, I honestly... I left, I left before I graduated, um, and I had two really good professors, and I, I found university incredibly inspiring. And the reason that I left was because the the place that university was at in terms of the process that they were teaching people would have been you know revolutionary in 1985 <laughs> and that's not that's not to say that they they're not there's not amazing things to be learned but one of the problems i had was i i knew i wanted to be an engineer i wanted to let's take hat. Um, i wanted to be a software developer And I think that, and again, your mileage may vary, and I don't want to make blanket statements about academic CS education in the United States, but it's Mm -hmm. heavily oriented towards research. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of research projects sponsored by academic institutions that are being hosted on GitHub and that have any test coverage. Like, this is the thing, and, and, you know, my professors... there
1: There are some... But they're, they're the exception, not the rule. i, yeah.
2: I agree. and and I think that one of the one of the other big problems is that professors are researchers. They're not writing software that's going to be consumed by a user. They're making proofs. They're they're you know they're essentially practical mathematicians. And well, I so
1: mean, isn't that kind of one of the one of the things about research universities is the in, the incentives are around publication. Um, so. This is kind of back to the, you know, like we have these problems in, in industry too, right? Of like, you get more of what you incentivize.
2: Absolutely. Uh, publish or perish. Absolutely. And, I'm, and, I, and I don't want to make any value judgments about that. It, it is what it is. And for me, what I, what I sort of realized was where I want to be, which is in the industry writing software, was, a, was ahead of what I was learning. Um, and frankly, pairing with <laughs> you know like the amazing people that I was pairing with at Pivotal I I learned more in a 6 month internship than I learned in two semesters of you know advanced computer science classes and that's not to say that I learned more of what cs degree could have taught me I learned more of what I wanted to learn about software engineering
1: right right
2: and it's I mean, it's a trade off
1: right like I mean I'm not sad that I got a cs degree and I don't feel like I use all of the stuff in it, you know, in work regularly but like any degree it's generally, it's not, you know, for lack of a better term like training. It's Mm -hmm. education which is a different thing, right? Like it teaches you to think in theory if it does a good job, it teaches you to think and to reason and to cooperate and to, you know, follow through. I mean, you know, to maybe use the scientific method even as well as, you know, big O notation,
2: like. One of the things I learned at university was how to read documentation. I mean, there there's, there's a, a number of skills that I can directly credit to spending two and a half years studying for a CS degree w- w- was, you know, I started programming really in depth in high school, and I didn't graduate beyond being able to type what I learned from the tutorial and getting, like, I didn't graduate beyond modifying that and expanding on that and reading Docs and reading an API and I came out of university and I sort of Pivotal and I, I felt very comfortable. Okay, I can go to godoc.org and comprehend like, oh, this, this method does what I need it to do. I can now apply that to the grander scheme of what I want to achieve functionally in the software that I'm writing. And Absolutely, I think that the critical thought that's required to make that plan from reading documentation absolutely came from university education. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that it couldn't have come from pairing or it couldn't have come from Dev camp or whatever, but yeah, I think there's huge value in studying CS academically.
1: So, okay, so for people who um, are not in a position where they're gonna go back and do you know a master's in software engineering or whatever, but they do want to improve, uh, it sounds like pairing with people who do understand the stuff is one step that they could go through that might help.
2: I, I learned more about SQL than taking a graduate databases course from pairing for a week on an optimization issue with a Rails engineer. And, that's, and that's, that's not to say that the professor was bad, that's not to say that the course was slow, it's to say that there's I think there's certain things that you only learn by, oh shoot, this query takes 16 seconds, what the heck do we do? And you spend the next week on Google and on SQL documentation and reading blog posts and pairing the entire time. Mm -hmm. I think there's not a lot of replacements for the experience of sitting next to somebody who really knows what they're doing and typing.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see it. Or even if you're not doing the pairing part of that, the well, shit, this is all, everything is on fire. It, it, what is it? There, it was a charity Majors had a good you know, quote from the talk she gave at Operability. Remember, Andrew? She was like, you know, everything's on fire, and suddenly you're an expert in Redis at three in the morning.
2: <laughs> That's exactly what it was. It, you know, there was th- at the end of the week, and I'm not going to claim I'm an expert in any way, but by the end of the week, I knew at least enough SQL to feel comfortable writing queries that weren't you know, uh, active record. Mm-hmm. Nice. But I, I think that, I don't know, I, I, I talk about pairing a lot, and I talk about this at all my talks, and I, I talk about this with my coworkers and my friends. And basically, I'm at the point where I'm young enough that people forgive me for speaking in absolutes, but I never want to work for a company that doesn't pair. And that's basically that's basically like you know a year, a year and a half at Pivotal and I'm done. I'm like okay, pairing. That's the way to write software.
1: Nice. Well, and so that's that's actually something that I find interesting because you talked a little bit before about like change coming from maybe top down, like how useful it is that um, leadership at, at Pivotal agrees with you, for example, about pairing. But then I'm, I'm kind of imagining Future's Act going into some other company and just starting some like Rebel Alliance rogue pairing. Just be like, we're going to do this. Like, what do you think about, you know, the direction that change can come from?
2: I think that change can absolutely come from the bottom. And, you know, my, my grandparents were basically professional activists in the 60s. Um, and so I, I have this sort of like, familial belief and in, in change from the bottom up. But I'll say this, when your CEO is in the office on Fridays walking around going, are you pairing on that? Are you pairing on that? Are you pairing on that? It helps a lot. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, it's helpful that Rob me thinks that everybody should pair when writing software. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I have a, a friend, ex-co-worker, who went to work at... um healthcare startup and now I'm super blanking. And they didn't pair. And he joined them to to help them out with DevOps and he's slowly getting more pairing to happen. I think it's I think it's a real thing. I think it's one of these things where it's it's sort of almost seductive in once you get somebody pairing, then they like it. Because it's <laughs> awesome. So of course it will spread. Mm-hmm. But um but again it it's change is a lot easier when when it's coming from all directions. Mm-hmm.
1: So, for the for the people that we were talking to last week, Andrew, like, what kinds of change, um, either in these like you know practice procedural things like pairing, or um, what other changes do you think that large organizations that want to change are going to start with, or should start with?
0: Such a loaded question. <laughs> It's it's hard to uh, to discuss the, some of the people we talked to last week.
1: Yeah, we don't have to talk about them specifically, but just large organizations.
0: So there's a. I was using this in in some of the talks I was giving this week that the. Uh, that every every happy family is alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So mm-hmm. I think I think sometimes the 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 transformation that's needed in. I, I don't believe there's like a connect-the-dots, paint-by-numbers way to transform, mm-hmm. that that you have to be thoughtful and, and contextual about what you're doing. To me, from kind of an engineering, agile software perspective, everything, everything really starts with being able to build from source reproducibly, uh, and then as you extend to services with uh, whatever kind of DevOps mentality, that should include the actual infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think. I think pairing is a great practice. I think lots of people would benefit from adopting it. I think it's so far away from the way many many people work, and that pairing itself is a skill that you, you kind of need pairs that are equipped and experienced with that skill to teach you. If you just start pairing up, you, you will you will have some benefit, I think, but it's it's not the same. Just like TDD is a skill, just like any of these things are skills. You kind of need you kind of need someone who knows how to do it to show you. You know, any other any other skill you're going to benefit from having uh, coaching and mentorship. It, it, I feel like it's the same sort of thing. So when when I look at what people are doing, if they're if they're able to build from source and they can build their their stuff and they should really focus, to me, on uh, continuous integration. I, I I think it's kind of dangerous when people are trying to get to a continuous delivery model and they haven't really got continuous integration yet? Yeah, that, is,
1: that, is that even a thing?
0: Oh oh, oh. happens all the time.
1: Uh. How but how do they how do they think that will work?
2: They're Just like they're like
0: yeah they're like let's cut the brakes on the car. <laughs> we'll
2: probably be fine. Oh my God. Ship it. Do it live. Who cares? <laughs> no, I, I think Andrew's totally right. Pairing's not a panacea any more than continuous integration alone is a panacea, any more than continuous deployment, any more than having good test coverage is a panacea. Where it comes in, and he's also totally right, it's a skill. It's a skill that takes years to cultivate and develop. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing, it's, it's part of the puzzle of, and I think my, my manager, um, uh, Pivotal put it best, w- he said to me, we're, we're working on finding the most humane way to write software. And I think that it's, it's just part of the pieces that you put together to find that humane way of writing software. And it, it's lucky that writing software in a quote humane way turns out to be also very efficient um, from a financial perspective and from a risk perspective. But it, it comes back to if you're just pairing, if you just suddenly tell people, hey, pair up, share a keyboard, that's not gonna go over so well, and that's not gonna solve any problems. If, if you try to build a culture that, like you say, incentivizes these specific ways of writing software that put value on the benefits you get out of CI and the benefits you get out of CD and the benefits you get out of not having to do a code review, before pushing commits, if you incentivize those things, suddenly pairing starts to make more sense.
0: I think one of the things that is the big difference is when you, you see the, the willingness to invest in the future and it's not just about oh this is a project that we're going to finish but it's actually the organization itself is investing in itself because I feel like one of the biggest benefits of pairing is the osmotic spread of information and skills through, through the, the teams right if you if you ever pair with people then you see someone do something with a tool and you're like oh how did you do that right like you you're constantly learning from each other in a way that that doesn't happen if you go off for eight hours a day every day and just do your own thing and then kinda try to do integration through the through the CI so so to me I feel like pairing I think there's there's plenty of arguments and, and evidence that says that you get at least as much code written um, and that the code you write is lower um, has lower bugs and is higher quality but to me it's actually the investment in the people that that makes it the most worthwhile and you have to you have to take a long-term view of, of software and in the investment in the software and the investment in the organization to have that realization
2: it I think it comes back to exactly what you said what, I mean, and this is what I think like Bridget has been leading us towards is the idea that writing software is a super organic process. It's not, a, a, it's, it's it's more, not just a thing it's, that happens mechanically.
0: It's more art than science.
2: Yeah, and it, and it involves communication, and it involves the sharing of information, and all of these things are, are human processes, not mechanical processes. And so in order to achieve a really powerful team of people capable of... Iterating and developing really good software, you have to have a way of spreading information across that team. You have to have a way of rotating expertise throughout the organization. And w- basically, where we're at is pairing is the best way to do that.
1: You know, I have like all sorts of thoughts about the the way that pairing keeps information flowing. You know, actively between people but really only in the smaller groups when they're interacting. I'm kind of wondering, like, how do you balance um, the intensity of pairing with the need to document and uh, disseminate information to the rest of the org? And I don't just mean with your PM, because you know as well as I do that the PM is not going to write absolutely everything about every piece of software.
2: This is a problem that we are only now beginning to even realize exists and and okay so i don't mean to speak out of turn there's lots of people who have seen this exist and lots of people who have foreseen this and lots of work going on at pivotal to help fix this but really what it's starting to become a painful thing is is this thing that we don't have processes around documentation beyond oh go pair with somebody from that team whose product has an api that you need to consume and we're we're working on that and, and suddenly you know, we, we need to transform our own process from something that was not oriented towards writing consumable APIs generically and then documenting them
1: mm-hmm.
2: to that. And you know, we have literally the best engineers in the world from all over the world, and now we're starting to realize, okay, now we need to start writing some docs. And
1: um, yeah. The terrible communication. It is actually a thing. Casey yeah. West wrote a really good blog post about it.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's there's, you know, it there's like the freaking docs team in San Francisco are invaluable. We oh, like we, we awesome. get anything I mean, they done can't write they
1: them. can't write everything for everyone all the time
2: though. No. Bummer <laughs> though. Well,
1: because they can't they can't capture what's in your head, right? No. And like the, I, just, I want to say one more thing about that and then I want Tony to introduce himself because he's doing the call. Um, but uh, I was reading something really interesting about um, NASA, how they want to rewrite some software and it's literally two generations of humans old. Mm-hmm. And they're reduced to going back and reading the mail of the developers from back then to try to figure out what they were thinking because they can read the code and see what the code does what they don't know was what was the thought process and decision making that went into writing this code. <laughs> and, like no one knows, and they're reading like paper mail from the '60s to try to figure out what was desired.
2: <laughs> you know, NASA is not the only one running into this problem. We, we every day we're trying to fix a bug in some legacy code, and we say, "Why? Why? I get that the result is this functionality, but why did you do it that way?" <laughs> and then you hit get blame, and it's you, and you're like. <laughs> <laughs> you're
1: like, thing? six months ago, me, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. I can't go back and ask him, can I? <laughs> yeah.
0: But popping up one level, this is a point I was making uh, a few times this week, that why is much more powerful than what when, yes. you're, trying to, when you're trying to make decisions. If you're, if you're in the middle of code, and you, you can see what it does, like that's a level of power. But you're kind of doomed to replicate that functionality until you understand why. Like the, the types of refactoring you can do and the types of you know even deleting code you can do when you understand why is an order of magnitude more powerful and more flexible than if you just know what's, what's there.
1: Yeah. That's, that, I believe that's 100% right.
3: Um,
1: but yeah, so, so Tony, you've joined us. Uh, please say hi. Tell us about yourself.
3: Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> That's probably fine.
0: <laughs> that makes that makes four of us.
3: <laughs> uh, no, I'm just uh, I, I I just saw this thing on Twitter and so I just joined it. So awesome. Um,
0: We're talking about software.
3: Okay, cool. I uh, the proper I, I, the proper I, I <laughs> cool. I, I am a, a network administrator, uh, instructor by uh, by trade. So I'm, you know, the the, the uh, it's intersecting a lot with uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery, and cloud native, and all that stuff. So I teach a lot mm-hmm. of um, uh, mostly Cisco courses and OpenStack and that kind of thing. So well, the
0: the network world is becoming more and more software defined, right? Like that's the that's the buzzword of the day, and we start to be able to have APIs to manipulate things then it starts to look suspiciously like software, software yeah
3: yeah and i th- i think apis is especially like restful apis are are a huge uh, game changer in terms of automation of networking because we really haven't had a lot of useful tools for automating network configurations for the past 20 years uh, cisco administrators juniper administrators etc we've been mostly doing things by just banging out config on on banging up config on individual switches so
0: by hand
3: oh yes. i know yeah. It's still, even today, most networking configurations are done by hand, which is, you know, you know especially in software and in you know, server administration, that's just inconceivable.
1: And and how about cleaning up this week's Jun- uh, Juniper backdoor? That also is by hand.
3: Uh, yeah, probably
2: uh, going <laughs> is that through that it up- the screen OS thing. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah,
3: I, I, I have this as, well, I, I don't know the entire backstory behind it, but I think it's that the ScreenOS just had an administrator backdoor that they could go in and, and say, oh, hey, uh, you know, can you log into my device and check my config for me, and it was just kind of a single password that they could go in, and I think that's what it was. I'm not 100% positive. But they're not the only vendor that's had that, and I have no other vendors that have that exact same thing.
2: I am. Um, I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to sign off now. Tony, it's nice to meet you. Sorry that I'm
0: it, leaving it, just it, as
2: soon as it gets interesting.
0: We we, we no, no sorrow. There's no sorrow necessary. And Say Zach goodbye, was. We,
1: we've already got more Zach than we thought we were going to get because he was. Uh, he's got an early morning commuting to San Francisco
2: tomorrow. Cash no train. No tears. Only <laughs> dreams, only dreams now. Right. It's It's great to finally talk to you, Bridget. And uh, hopefully sure. I'll see you all next week. And, Jack! it's
3: good to meet another fellow cat enthusiast. <laughs> yes.
2: Cheers. Oh, man. All right. Good night, cat. everybody.
1: Good night. <laughs> uh, my, my cat is actually, uh, like, right there. <laughs> like she's, she's sleeping next to me.
0: But going back to this notion that I feel like the networking has evolutionary. It's been frozen in amber for a while. Oh yeah, and just in the last few years, there's been a proliferation of interest and, and effort on the software-defined networking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this chick, I, I really think there's a lot of room for that to evolve, and it'll, it'll evolve rapidly over the over the next few years.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, most data center. I mean, speaking from a data center perspective, so there's like there's campus networking, there's wireless networking, there's a whole s- there's service provider networking so I work entirely in the data center so I can only speak to the data center part but um, you're absolutely right we've been frozen in amber for the past 20 years the the way that we've done networking 20 years ago is the same way we do it now bang out a config on every individual device and we're only now just starting to do like infrastructure as code and continuous integration continuous delivery where we're, we're starting to be able to we're have, we have to deal with an ephemeral um, compute platform. So containers and virtual machines that are winking in and out of existence all the time, we can't keep up with those configs by hand, so, mm-hmm. so it is... I,
0: I, think, I think that was one of the things that drove the, the server config software's code forward is that you basically got to the point where you were overwhelmed unless you solved this problem with software, but for the most part you still kept those on these flat, you know, L3 networks and you didn't have to like do tons of dynamic network configuration. But now now with this new, you know, as you just sort of articulate some of the things driving it, this new world of ephemeral networks, is there's no way that a human being can keep up with that and, and do it at the speed that the business needs.
3: Yeah, we we keep talking about SDN, and, and the problem with SD, software-defined networking is a term is that it, it suffers the same problem cloud computing had until NIST came out with their definition in 2010.
0: It's whatever this vendor wants it to be.
3: Yeah, so we've got SDN washing, like, you know, I, I wrote five lines of Python, and now I'm an SDN platform, so how does it feel to be poor, suckers? Like... <laughs> It, it, and then when this came out with the definitions, at least it was a line in the sand, it said like you have to be these five things in order to be a cloud computing platform. And I think one of the, the, the biggest game changer in terms of networking, and again I'm just speaking in terms of a data center networking perspective, is that we are, um, it's got to be self-service. So if we can't, I mean in networking we rely on, on request tickets. And that's how we've been doing it for the past twenty years. You put in a request ticket. Hey, I need a load balancer config change. I need a firewall rule. I need whatever. And we go on and we do it by hand. And and th- now we have these APIs where we can, you know, there's there's platforms from like Cisco ACI where they've got APIs that you can just throw commands at and spin up a network, spin up a default gateway, whatever. So that's the biggest change in networking, I think, that we're going to see in, in um, is. The self-service concept of uh, of cloud computing. So, are uh, you
1: seeing are you seeing some of that? Like, I, I'm sorry, Tony. I've, even if I do know, I, if I know you on Twitter, I'm sorry. I know a number of people on Twitter, so it's possible. I don't know what kind of organization you work in. Like, are you in? You mentioned a campus, but do you mean like the corporate campus or an academic campus?
3: Oh, oh. So, I was talking about different. So, I, I'm a I'm a IT instructor. I, I'm a CCSI Cisco Certified Systems Instructor. So I teach primarily Cisco courses. I don't work for Cisco, but okay. I mostly work in the Cisco world. Um, gotcha. but I, um, and so when I talk about campus networking, I'm talking about like building to building, put in, right. uh, okay. in a closet. Um, and that's a that's a different style of networking that I don't really deal with. I, I deal with just the data center.
1: Okay. because I'm kind of what I'm kind of wondering is when you're mentioning this self-serve stuff. Uh, uh, I wonder, well, are the network administrators or you know, security people who make the firewall rules changes from those tickets that you mentioned, are they going to be okay with self serve? Like, does that start to be kind of a, a cultural problem of getting people to say yes to letting others use the API?
0: We we already know the answer to this.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, but I'm not sure because I don't spend a lot of time with data centers. Maybe the data the people that Tony is dealing with are actually like oh yeah those people over there we're fine with giving them access so I
3: mean I so I teach I'm in, so front, I teach I'm week, in front of different, week. Week. And and different students every week and almost all team. of them are <laughs> terrified of this, <laughs> of this kind of not all of them but you know there's a there's a there's a pretty big um, fear of like self-service and automation am, am I going to be am, am I going to have a job as a network administrator and, and my answer is always oh, of course If anything, these networks are going to be more complicated than the ones that we have. They're just going to be more automated. And it's going to require an even higher skill set in order to to understand and maintain them. So as a network administrator, I provide exactly zero benefit to an organization by typing in VLAN 100 on a Cisco switch or a Juniper switch or an Arista switch. The value that I provide the organization is knowing what that means, knowing that it's a broadcast domain, knowing that I need to interconnect it with another layer two domain through an SVI and that kind of thing. So that knowledge is is still going to be needed. We're just not going to be doing things by hand. And the same thing happened in network administration. So I, I started out my career as a condescending Unix administrator, and <laughs> and we went through the same thing, of course. Uh, it, you know, we went from uh, bare metal machines that had uptimes that were measured in years. And then we moved to virtual virtualization. And in you know, virtualization we we even then we we scripted things out. We didn't we did things by hand. And in cloud computing of course everything is immutable images and, and and we just spin them up and tear them down and clap, pets versus cattle and all that. So we're gonna I think we're gonna go through the same change. Our roles will be the same but our our day to day job will be fairly different.
0: So the the pattern I saw you know watching the the servers go through this is that the administrators are afraid of two things: one that they won't have a job, and then two that they, they somehow don't have control anymore. You know they're worried that, oh like somehow I have more control of typing these repetitive commands into something than I do if I if I just let the computers do the competitive or the repetitive um, commands. And what I think we've seen happen you know and this is in some ways the quote unquote devops movement is that there's not there's not less demand for those skills right now there's more demand uh, because it following quote unquote Javon's paradox as we as we c- become more efficient at utilizing a resource we don't use less of it we actually use more
3: yeah and i think there's i mean there, there should be one thing that that we should acknowledge is that it, it, it is it is somewhat terrifying to be in this world right now because in the networking world right now because there's so much change um, and there is so much to keep up with I mean we went from uh, a world of a very static uh, very static environment to now we're seeing you know virtual machines be motioning left and right and now we've got immutable um, image, images being spun up and spun down on things like OpenStack Public, public cloud versus private cloud, um, and now we've got containers, and now microkernels are now a thing. So just, you know, I've just learned about NVMe, and just keeping up with all this stuff is, is quite a challenge. So it's kind of, it's terrifying from a, if you've been studying this traditional routing and switching for the past 20 years, there's a whole lot of new stuff that's come along that, that is very terrifying, and, and it's a, you know, not a uh, not an un, um, reasonable fear to have that, you know, am I, am I going to have a job in, in four or five years or even I, two years. I think
0: if you attach your identity to your task then that certainly drives those fears. But if you can understand the principles and the value of the domain
3: expertise, you're going to have a lot of opportunities. Absolutely, and if you, if you can keep up with even one quarter of what's going on, then you're going to have a leg up as, as things change. But I think I think, the, I think the, um, in order to, to stay relevant, your, your skill set's going to have to grow. And it's going to we, – we, we sort of saw this when virtualization came about. If you were a network administrator, you could not avoid the endpoints anymore. Um, so you, as a network administrator, most of us had, had to learn a little bit about vSphere and I think that's that trend is continuing now as network administrators we're dealing in the storage area so now we need to know fiber channel iSCSI and we need to know more about things like OpenStack and and so forth so we have to expand our knowledge and that's a little bit scary but it it, as we increase our domain knowledge we increase our our value to our organization so and maybe on
1: the maybe on the bright side those a little bit of an echo Maybe on the bright go side, no, maybe on the bright side, they will never again have to drive to the data center because they didn't uh, type right before rebooting. that switch, right?
3: Yeah, we, yeah, we've most of us in the networking world, we, we've all been there, and I'm sure the server world did too, where you you mess up and you have to go and and so forth. What, what's up,
0: Los Angeles?
4: Hey, Andrew. Hey, Lon. Hey, sorry. I was I've been listening for a bit, and I figured I'd I'd stop lurking and actually join the hangout. So,
0: and what do you, you have to tell say?
4: Yeah, um, I mean, I think a lot of this ends up being like not just it's a like it, it, it's the same thing that we went through on the server and database side with on you know when when in the early earlier days of DevOps of you know how do we trust our our coworkers? I mean, if you start building, I think the network is sort of the last bastion around a lot of this automation. And so as you start to offer APIs around it, it's the same conversations that we had two, two think three four or five years ago. It's just um, you know, it's. It, I don't think it's so much about fear of automation. I think it's more of fear, fear of lack of of control as you start to trust your colleagues and provide a service rather than, um, well, providing an API that's a service rather than providing a human that's a service. I guess is the.
0: and uh, storage to be last.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess outside of the cloud, yeah, storage is probably the last part. Yeah. Um I, I I don't think we see enough, I mean, especially at the DevOps days, I don't think we see enough folks talking about network automation. I hope that's something that we can change in, in 2016. I don't know that we'll fix it in DevOps LA in 2016, but in, in some of the other places it would be great.
1: Well, when, when do you open your CFP?
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's closed already for LA. That's why I said I don't think we'll solve it for LA just yet, except for maybe open oh. open spaces. Oh, sorry, the, ne- right, the April right. one. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know yet. We're figuring that out.
1: So Tony, whereabouts are you located?
3: I'm in Portland, Oregon.
1: Ah, Portland is going to be having a DevOps days.
3: Yep. And I think we're uh we're turning into kind of a uh kind of a DevOps paradise in in some regard. Puppet's based out of here. Mm-hmm. And a couple yeah. other companies are are moving here.
0: Puppet's there, Intel is there. Yeah. There's a couple campuses. There's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting.
3: Yeah, but, you, but Port- you're not- yeah, Portland, had
1: a, Portland had a DevOps Days, I think it was 2013, and it looks like they're going to have another one this year. So if you want to start thinking about what you might want to give as a talk and propose it to Portland CFP, Tony, you could be talking about this to the, the DevOps Days crowd.
3: That sounds cool. Yeah.
4: Um, and there's the Seattle one, just 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 slightly north of that too. That's probably worth
3: chatting with too. Cool, I'll check it out.
1: Yeah, DevOpsDays.org has the info that you seek.
3: I'll look it up.
0: So, Long, you have been over at Datadog for a while, right?
4: Yeah, about six months now, give or take.
0: What what's uh, what are you seeing around the evolution of this?
4: Um, I think it's a lot of it's uh, well around. Uh, Anything in
0: the industry, really?
4: <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's just another. It's a lot of everything. Old is new again. A lot of folks are. Um, uh, so I think when when we were when when folks were first moving into um, whatever we call cloud now with VMs, um, we were having a lot of lots of lots of folks were implementing you know dynamic infrastructure patterns, and then towards the end of that cycle, I think. It became, or, or towards more recent years in that cycle, folks have just sort of been lifting up a thing they had in a data center and dropping it off in somebody else's data center in virtualization and, and maybe not adopting all of the same practices, at least on the first step. And I think we're going through the same cycle right now with containers as everybody's, uh, with, as everybody's looking at things like Kubernetes or, you know, Cloud Foundry or whatever it might be. They're starting to realize, like, okay, I can't... I, I can't name all of my servers by the planets and and, and and or something like that, and expect them to all be around forever. Um, I should, you know, I, I, sh- I should find some way to automate them, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll automate my infrastructure, and have it be a little bit more dynamic than that. And so they're starting down that path. I'm I'm curious to see if we manage to keep it uh, for longer than a couple years this time around. Um, I don't I don't know that we'll have a choice given just how the current path is, you know, the the current path of schedulers is going, and I, I think that's a good thing, but um, but yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm seeing right now. Um,
0: so you're you're sort of postulating that we will re- rebuild the sins of the past in in whatever the new the new paradigm is.
4: Uh, I hope that that is not the case. Uh, I, I'm just I'm saying we, we we history has seemed to repeat itself in the last couple uh, last couple chapters. So um, I think it's something we just um, need to keep an, out, an eye out for.
1: There was a um, my coworker Casey West and I from Schaefer's team went and visited the fine folks at 18F mm-hmm. um, in D.C. on Thursday, I think it was, yeah. And what they told us is that they had a no-clown-car policy, which is to say they didn't want people just slapping a whole bunch of you know, stuff into a Docker container and like throwing it on their cloud.gov platform. Yeah. They were like, let's, let's be thoughtful about what we're constructing.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 the, I mean, it's sort of a a running joke at this point. But what's your problem? Okay, cool. You can solve that. Let's just rub some Docker on it, or some Kubernetes on it, or some you know Cloud Foundry on it, or whatever it might be. And I don't, I, I think like every technology, at some point, it's going to become you know, the the latest trends are going to become this this thing that the the late adopters just they pick it up because that's the that's the new and exciting thing that we should be using, and let's drop just drop everything in there. Um, so. Yeah, I, I I don't know. It's like uh, I mean, it's the same thing with the term DevOps, right? For a number of years, it I don't I don't want to I don't want to say that we had it defined, but it had a you know, had a certain theme to it. And now, you know, a DevOps engineer is the guy that gets paid a little bit more money on the Indeed on the Indeed job posting. Um,
1: and is is not always a guy.
4: Sorry, sorry, sorry. I uh, yes.
1: <laughs> you know. Well,
0: it's also the the person the who person. is. Who is between the developers and the operations?
4: Yeah.
0: So you so you have a new silo in the middle.
4: Yeah. That's how you do it, right? I, I take the requirements from the customers and give it to the engineers. I think is the is the you know office space quote.
1: Yes. Damn it! I'm a people person. Why don't you people understand that? Yeah. I see, Tushar joined us. Hey, Tushar. You're hey. still
3: awake. Yeah, I was actually listening on. our driving back, so. I just got back home. Oh, was, wow, Yes, okay. it's, it's pretty cool with technology, you can like, listen on to the YouTube channel while driving back, so it's quite interesting. Were you
0: watching too, or just listening?
3: Uh, just listening, like the video was on, but like
0: focusing on the drive, <laughs> because it's raining here in some I'm glad moment. I'm glad you made it home safe. Yeah, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>
1: Distracted driving due to cloud foundry or cloud native after dark is not something that we want to have. <laughs> no, I just to you. <laughs> but I'm glad you're here. Yep.
0: So in the data dog, we, we use the, the product right now. I'm just curious what you're seeing like that evolution of the metrics and the I don't know, it seems like that is kind of Hways to, to evolve quickly as well.
4: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's uh, what what we're telling what we're seeing folks do finally, and and it's sort of what we're speaking to is uh, rather than asking, is it, it, it's really sort of taking the data that's that's coming from your underlying infrastructure, whether it be, uh, you know, the uh, like a cloud provider like Amazon or Azure or GCE or um, you know your container provider like Docker or uh, some scheduler take that metadata and use that to sort of craft queries about your infrastructure rather than say alert me on thing you know alert me when CPU is high on node one you say you, you ask questions about your work like what is what is what is your what is your service that happens to be in a bunch of containers supposed to be doing is it supposed to return some API calls great let's ask let's come up with a query that rings true whether it's two containers or a thousand containers today um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I think a lot of this stuff is, are things that we, like I said, are things that we, we started to come through in, you know, three, four years ago when folks were just starting down the cloud path, and we're just, we're revisiting it again because we, we you know, a lot of, organi- I think a lot, number of organizations sort of deviated from that as, as you sort of got complacent or lazy and started to treat Amazon and Azure and GC as the same thing you had in your data center.
0: Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think in some ways it's the same pattern you see when programmers learn a new language, and yeah. they they write in the idioms that they that they know. Yep. Instead of adopting the kind of the new the new patterns.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you don't know any better and you have the the pressure to deliver something, then you're just going to ride the bike you know how to ride. Yep.
1: Uh, what did they say? You can write C in any language.
0: And th- I mean that's not a value judgment. It's just it's just the nature of, of the beast.
4: Yeah, uh, but I think if you do it, and, and, uh, like like you said, not a value judgment, but it's a question of are you getting the best uh, the best value out of the technologies you have picked? Um, like I can probably take you know we can probably take some crazy COBOL application, figure out how to compile it to you know run wherever and run and you know run in run in the cloud too. it just is that is 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 the pattern that you picked there when you wrote this thing in the you know, many many decades ago, still still valuable now. I, I don't know.
0: Are, are you trying to tell me something?
4: <laughs> I don't know. Is is Cloud Foundry written in Cobol?
0: No, no. the the, <laughs> the Docker that I have running Cobol on Amazon right now.
4: Ah. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's just a question of you know, like I said, are you are are you getting the best value out of the technologies that you picked? And if not, then maybe you should maybe maybe it's, maybe maybe it's maybe we need to reevaluate the choices we well, got down
0: here I think um, one of the problems that we have and I don't know how to fix this in short order is that the the skills to do this are, are kind of a oral tradition and that there's not very many people who've been exposed to these patterns in a way that they can replicate them yeah and it's, and it's not really being it's not really being communicated right like I feel like there's there's a bunch of stuff that happens in conferences where some of that happens but there's no conference right now that I feel like totally captures this, this kind of kind of new architectural paradigm. Like everyone sort of dances around aspects of it.
4: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think there's. Uh,
0: uh, Are you getting invaded?
4: Yeah, I, I may switch rooms here. Uh, I think. I mean, I think there's there's a number of new conferences now, like uh, you know the operability IO folks and the, uh, uh, the you know the HashiConf and a bunch of other ones that I think start going down down these paths. Um, it's a little different than what we might talk about at, you know, DevOps Days or Scale or some of these other conferences. So, um, but, but you're right. I don't know that that's, that that's the way to reach the, the wider masses beyond just what's in, um, you know, beyond just the, you know, the couple hundred folks or thousand folks that attend these events.
0: Well, I just, I just keep coming back to, I feel like there's this uh, architecture conference that's missing. That is not. It's not a software architecture conference. It's a system architecture conference.
3: I I, I think some some of the challenge there is that it, there's so many new things coming about that it's hard to to you know pick a technology, pick a methodology because someone else is coming up with a whole. Actually, here no, here's a better way of doing things, and here's a here's a new way of doing things, and. Yeah. And uh you know I just learned about unikernels like a month ago, and that 's like a whole new thing and you know we were talking about containers and all these different technologies and golang and and all this there's just a flood of new things that are coming out that it's hard to to it, it 's hard to follow you know which way everything is going because everything keeps changing
0: well, I think the change always happens it's just a question of how fast things. Actually, change right the the thing that I would go there is almost everything you said is in some way similar, right? the The principles are more important than this. This kind of goes back to this notion of why that we we had earlier. You know, unikernels, containers, and Go all kind of have this unifying theme that they create deployable artifacts that are all self-contained with the full dependency, yeah. right? And the, the the difference between the Basically, the difference between a unikernel and a, and a container is are you carrying the, the full weight of a multipurpose operating system underneath it, or do you just have that, you know, sy- system calls exposed for the, for the hypervisor? But, but those principles of architecture, like building, like, scalable infrastructure, I don't think those change at all. It's, because it kind of comes down to physics. It's the laws of physics. Like, how do we capture, what's the, the grand unifying theory that the, like makes all this stuff kind of make sense from first principles instead of here's the one way that you do this technique with this one technology.
1: Right, okay. I think talking about the patterns is going to make a lot more sense. Than you can talk about technology to illustrate the patterns, but talking about the patterns makes more sense than just going into detail on one specific techn- technological implementation
4: yeah i mean I, I think the the reasoning behind a lot of this is the same thing we went down in the java world maybe whatever, whatever it was ago that we had when we were doing uh you know wars and wars and years then right it was you know grab all of our dependencies shown together in one thing so that we have control over our environment. We've just come up with you know met better better or different ways to do that now um, and uh, it's just sort of again everything old is new again. <laughs> So it's just, we just got to make sure that the patterns live, live, live past the early adopters.
0: Absolutely. So we made it an hour now. Yeah. How, how long should we plow into the night?
4: I'm, I'm likely going to drop off here in a couple minutes as it's, uh, I just, just realized it's past midnight.
1: <laughs> it's 2.03 a.m. Central Time, which is where I am.
0: We are through the looking glass, people.
1: Well, plus Shaker and I spent the week on the East Coast, so it feels like three in the morning.
3: Yeah,
0: I still have uh, more cocktail left. Well, you better drink that. <laughs> I'm probably gonna do some actual work before I go to bed. Work is you're,
4: a thing. You're on the West Coast here as well, right, Andrew?
0: Yeah, I'm just up the road. Where, where do you live in Los Angeles?
4: So I actually live in the in the Bay Area. I just happen to be in LA and uh, for the next month or two, uh, so I'm in did, at the moment.
0: Did you always live there?
4: Uh, in the no, I'm from LA originally, and then uh, uh, work and 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 uh, my wife's school had us move up to the Bay Area, and so I just uh, I I, re, I relocate to LA every December January ahead of scale and DevOps Day stuff. Got it. So it's a way to come visit family.
0: Yeah, I live in I live in Los Angeles since June.
4: Cool. Welcome.
0: So, if anyone has any secrets or aha's they want to throw out there, let's do that, and then we'll call it a night.
2: Hmm.
0: What, what did you learn this week?
1: I think this week I learned that while all unhappy organizations may be unhappy in different ways. There are a lot of common patterns. Um, like, I ended up going and watching Star Wars Thursday night at the Smithsonian, um, at the Air and Space Museum, because reasons. And uh, afterwards, I'm sitting there at this satellite place, which has boozy milkshakes and like you know sliders and stuff. It's I suppose exactly what drunks want after Star Wars movies. And um, Mikey Dickerson is telling me about how, you know, these IT organizations in government have so many of the same challenges as the large IT organizations, you know, corporately. And like the incentives are different, you know, and so therefore how you can get people to change behavior is slightly different, but like it's all the same problems everywhere. And I hadn't really realized that like even organizations that on the surface look totally different, they have very similar challenges. So, doesn't mean you can solve them the same way but a lot of the problems are pretty much exactly the same
0: so the answer is the blue the blue pill is that what you're saying?
1: (laughs) I, I don't know if pills are actually going to solve this it's like red blue or other I think it's more that listening to where everything hurts but also as Tony was alluding to earlier what everyone's afraid of is a really good place to start to help them move towards something better that they will actually accept.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key is it, it's often easy to, to have this platitudinal answer about what you should do but and I've, I've done this before where people, you tell them exactly what you would do and they're like there's no way, <laughs> like there's literally no way we could do that so then then what do you do?
1: Maybe try to figure out what they can do, if they can do even one little thing like you mentioned about reproducibly building from source, like that's something It's can start.
0: Yeah, you have to make little little goals, but it's sort of like the—have you ever seen the video of the guy who's the—he's a disabled veteran and he starts doing yoga with Diamond Dallas Page and he goes from like barely being able to walk with crutches to running. Does anyone see this? I have seen that,
1: but that's amazing.
0: I kind of feel like that's what these—that's what these organizations need to go through. But they—but they need the force of will. They need a combination of their own will and someone believing in them and a little bit of coaching along the way to to get better. But they're—they're they're capable of everything. They already have the people. They have the talent. They have the mission. And in many cases, they have someone inside the organization that's going to tell them the exact same words. I will. Exact same things I would recommend they just they don't have the the faith to take that that first step
4: I would say there's also something about there's also a level of validation that comes with an outside party that maybe has no um, you know no no prejudices or investment in like how the organization is running today comes in and says hey I noticed this thing and it's the same thing that you're thinking but you know I'm, I'm gonna reinforce it for you and the and, that, and that's not just for the individual that's that's saying that and needs and you know needs that validation and backup, but also for the rest of the organization where they say, Oh, you know, we know we know you know you know whomever has been you know giving us uh, great advice, but now this is validated by by the expert that came in. It's sort of the I, I think that's that's it, true regardless of which technology we're talking about. It just it, it, it's really
0: just valuable. one of the weird dynamics of, of consulting, I think.
4: Yeah.
1: Um,
4: the consultants came in and they will save the day.
1: Hey Andrew, I think we might be the uh, grown-ups in the room that people are supposed to listen to. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you're going to listen to me. <laughs> what could possi- What could possibly go
1: wrong? It's probably fine. Yeah,
0: that that's the thing is you you want people to have good results, and then there's these big these big uh, outcomes that they want, and for you just to say things that, whether they do them or not, like that's just a lot of responsibility.
4: Well, but also you, so you come in for two weeks, um, and this organization has had its dysfunction for years or decades. had like there's only so much you're going to do in that small period of time, and hopefully you're going to instill some, some, some kernel of change in there that then ripples out and becomes you know the re- you know and, and has the effect that the organization was desiring. But like as a consultant, you're only there. For a certain period of time, you can't expect that by the time you're out the door it's going to be, you know, uh, rainbows and unicorns.
0: You're just a butterfly flapping its wings. (laughs) And with that, I think we'll call it a night. Until next time. I think it's the, may the force be with you, is appropriate.